Ilsa, our partnership here, uh, you're meeting lots of people who I know, and you met my colleague Steve McFarland recently. How did that yes. go? Yeah, it was great. It was really It was really fascinating talking with him. I feel like I didn't really have that sense of all the things that you might want to rule out when Mm -hmm. someone first comes to you with a memory issue. And he was talking about that process of ruling things out. And that was really interesting to me. It was good. We met in a busy cafe and it was really Mm -hmm. loud. And I was like, Joel, is the sound okay? (laughs) (laughs) This is a Dementia Podcast, and I'm your host, Colm Cunningham. It's 10 in the morning, and Ilsa's chatting with Steve in a cafe down the road from Hammond Care's Melbourne office. It's another grey day, and the cafe is just filling up with the sounds of the late morning coffee crowd. Steve is the Head of Clinical Services for Dementia Support Australia, DSA for short, overseeing the national programme and supporting the team of doctors located across Australia, who work in the DSA program. But one of the reasons Ilsa is also talking to Steve is his ongoing work as a geriatric psychiatrist and his many years of experience in this area. He specialises in the care of older people, and Steve shares with Ilsa that around three quarters of the people he sees will have some kind of cognitive concern. When Steve walks in, the first thing I notice is how tall he is. We shake hands and sit down, and I ask a lot of questions. As we talk, the cafe gets more and more full, and the coffee machine is working overtime. My job there is to try and decide whether what they're presenting with is normal for their age or representative of of something, not necessarily a dementia, because various psychiatric disorders can present with memory problems as a symptom. So I try and tease out the cause of their uh, apparent memory concerns or complaints and either reassure them or make a diagnosis and start them on some treatment, hopefully. When we heard from Claire and Jim, one of the things I was interested in was how the diagnosis was delivered. I'd heard from Colm and the others that that is often the part that can be handled poorly. I get to asking Steve about his process. And so when you're thinking about being sensitive in the delivery, what are the things that you are, you know, what are the, how do you do that? What are, what are the ways in which you would d- deliver a diagnosis sensitively? Well, part of what I do during the, the hour that I spend with people during an initial consult is I try and get a sense of who they are and what their personality style is like yeah. and what their concerns are. You know, if they have already reached the conclusion that this is likely to be a dementia and you can get a sense for that once you've developed rapport in a consultation, yeah. then you can break the news in a different way compared to somebody who's clearly terrified that this might be the outcome. And yeah. you have to read people quite well during a consultation yeah. Uh, if I don't read them well enough during that first hour and more testing is necessary, then, you know, you develop that further rapport and sense of their personality style and their expectations with subsequent consults. And you just do it on the fly, really. It's a bit of an art based on how you read the person and their family and their expectations during the, the relatively brief time that you've known them. Yeah, and it's not long, really, is yeah, it? Yeah, there is no correct, no single correct way to break bad news. It's very yeah. much an individual thing. I could tell from talking with Claire and Jim in episode one that the meeting with the doctor and receiving the diagnosis, all of that was tough. 
despite how well it seems to have been handled. So he did some. So the that doctor did some tests um, with you. What's yes. his name? John, Ra, Ra, no, Ramon. 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 Yeah. yeah. There's no D, I think. It's Ramon. Just Ramon. Ramon. Yeah. And he, ga- and he gave you some tests. Did you have to do kind of written stuff? Yes. Yeah. And what was that like? Do you remember? I doing? can't remember. Don't remember doing. I can't remember that much. We were both very stunned by the information that he was giving us. Yeah. And he came to a very professional conclusion, diagnosis, if you like. Yeah. And yes. we then knew we were what we were heading towards. Yeah. I broke down. Um, and do people then have misinformation about what dementia is and is what happens then? The, the commonest one, when you tell them they have Alzheimer's disease, for example, there'll be a sigh of relief from the other side of the table and they'll say, well, at least it's not dementia. Okay. Or if you tell them that they have dementia because you're not quite sure what type it is, uh, they'll say, oh, thank God, I thought it was Alzheimer's disease. Yep. So that's the commonest misperception. That's the commonest question I get asked by what's patients and families. What's, what's the difference between yeah. dementia and Alzheimer's? Yeah. And the answer to that is, you know, there's a hundred odd different types of dementia, most of which are incredibly rare, but the commonest type is Alzheimer's disease. So it's a yeah. subset of dementia, if you like, but it's about 70% of all cases will be Alzheimer's type dementia. Everyone's been there, really. The trip to the doctor or GP or specialist Someone tells you something and maybe you're not really sure what that thing they said actually means. What do you ask? How do you ask it? Is it any different with dementia? I ask Steve about this. Usually not initially, not at the okay. first consultation. Their priority is to get a diagnosis or to be reassured. Yeah. They want to have their concerns validated or a particular condition ruled out or ruled in, mm. uh, what, the, what they typically do is once you've broken the diagnosis, uh, there tends to be a, a period of, of numbness on the other side of the table. Yeah. And people haven't thought of what questions they want to ask at that point. Mm. I usually tell them, as soon as you leave this room, all of these questions that you wanted to ask will come flooding back. Yes. So I'll invariably schedule a follow-up appointment Uh, to allow both uh, the patient themselves and their family member to think about what they want to ask. Mm. They'll typically ask a variety of questions. The commonest one is, you know, how long have I got or what can I expect going forward, Yeah, uh, which is a bit of a movable feast. Uh, There are sort of general rules about prognosis and life expectancy for all different types of dementia. But as I say, if you're in your late 80s and you have a, a diagnosis of an early dementia, you're not going to die of that. You're going to die of something else. Yeah. People often find that piece of knowledge very reassuring. Yeah. Otherwise, in Alzheimer's, the, the average survival from diagnosis with Alzheimer's to death from Alzheimer's might be 10 years. Okay. But there's such a wide variation on either side of that that the average becomes meaningless. Yeah. I've seen some people go downhill in two years from the point of the very first changes to, to requiring nursing home care. Other people have followed up for 15 years and they're still living at home with Mm. the same diagnosis. Mm. So the best guide you have for prognosis with the person sitting in front of you is to ask the question, 
how long have things been going on for to reach this point? And then you can roughly extrapolate forward. If they've had five or six years of concerns and they're still only very mildly impaired, you know, that's not a rapidly progressive condition and you can give them some reassurance. Yeah. On the other hand, if they were working six months ago and driving a car, and now they're struggling to cook meals at home, that's a very rapid change and you'd be more concerned about how the course is going to evolve. Have you had any surprise questions? <laughs> I wouldn't have expected anyone to ask that. Well, yeah, one of the questions I had having just delivered a diagnosis was uh, how do I donate my brain to science? Yes. Yes, which completely caught me out of left field. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that's a good question though. Yeah. Like. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not something that people typically consider. No. You know, organ donation is one thing, but donating your brain to a brain bank. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a great idea because, yeah. you know, we're, they're always looking for pathology samples to, to do tests. Sure. And, and so forth, so forth on. But uh, I was very surprised that that was at the, uh, the top of the, the person's list of questions. One of the things I mentioned to Steve was about getting that early diagnosis. Are there any negatives? Steve's thought on this was no. It was much better to have an early diagnosis as it gave them agency in their own future planning for care. It got me thinking about early detection and how early is early. This is one of the things that came up at IDC. So we're sitting here in our podcasting station with Craig Ritchie who we hauled out of a session to come chat with us. There's the faint buzz of the crowd coming from the main conference room, neatly partitioned off by large double doors. So, hi. Hi. Your name is Craig. It is. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Craig Ritchie? Yeah, sure. Tell me about your job, for starters. My job, I'll start with my job. I mean, I, you can tell me about the West Highland Way, uh, if you like. I'd probably rather talk about that, to be absolutely honest. But um, It's beautiful. It was a long walk. Yes. <laughs> as, is, as is my job. It's a long journey. When you know, he I, begins I, talking I, with me, I realise Craig has a quiet, almost self-effacing voice which feels somehow surprising after his confident presentation and his strong, clear opinions. Craig is a professor of ageing at the University of Edinburgh, as well as being the chair of the Scottish Dementia Research Consortium and the director of a new organisation called Brain Health Scotland. Before we get on to early detection, Craig said something when he was on the main stage that seems quite foundational to our conversations. But for starters, one of the things I heard you say yeah. was Alzheimer's is a brain disease, yes. not a mental illness. Correct. And that feels like a really important thing yeah. for people who are kind of new in the realm of, you know, maybe someone they know has just been diagnosed with dementia or maybe they themselves have just been diagnosed with dementia or they're, you know, starting to work as a carer. So can you tell me a bit more? What does that mean? It's a brain Sure. disease it's not a mental illness well yeah i mean i think the thing is we, we have to turn back the clock to 1906 i know that's this is not going to be a you know 120 year long okay, story but i am also a history geek so okay. as soon as you put those pictures up there of alzheimer's uh, yeah. and alzheimer's patient august sure. augusti augusta d augusta d yeah. and then the illustrations that he'd yeah. done okay sorry so, I interrupted. So, so, Talk so, to me. so the, the point is when 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 in 1906 when when alzheimer first described alzheimer's disease uh -huh. it was a brain disease you yeah. know then and as i was you know saying earlier the problem we faced in this branch of medicine is that we haven't had the advantages of other branches medicine have to be able to do what we call a tissue diagnosis yep. so most 
infectious diseases and cancer, you will know what is going on. Spe hepatology, you will know specifically what's going on in the body because you can actually look directly at the cells that are changing or whatever might be going on with, with a virus or a bacteria. But we can't go in and cut people's brains up. No, not ethically, no. <laughs> yep. so, so what we have to do is we've, we've had to spend the last hundred years or so kind of approximating to what may, might be happening in the brain because of how we live our lives, how we relate to the world around us, how the symptoms that we develop. So and one of the most obvious is memory impairment. Um, so over that hundred years or so, we've conceptualized these brain diseases through the lens of the symptoms that they present with. And we call that in, in medicine, a phenomenological approach. We look at the phenomena that emerge because of the disease. And because those symptoms that tend to present um, to, and come to the attention of the family or to the doctors, tend to be things like memory impairment and behavioral problems, neuro, what we call neuropsychiatric symptoms, they fell into the kind of the, 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 the remit of the psychiatrist. And therefore, not because this was a you know a mental health condition, but because of the people who were looking after these individuals were psychiatrists. Ipso facto, it became a mental health condition. Okay. But when you and I am a psychiatrist, but when you speak to families and carers, I think there's there's almost inevitably a kind of a resistance or a disquiet about being seen in a mental health hospital. The outpatient clinics are in psychiatric institutions. The, there are beds for people with dementia, and guess where they are? They're in psychiatric hospitals. Mm. So. What we're trying to do is is pivot back to, I think, what Auguste D would have wanted, as well as Alzheimer's would have wanted, and that is to recognize this as a brain disease. The frustration, if I'm being perfectly candid, is probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were beginning to get better at actually measuring the disease in the brain, brain imaging, spinal fluid assays, you know, the lumbar puncture, you can actually look at the proteins that are in the brain that relate, relate to the disease. However, it's taken the legacy of how the 20th century was, is carrying on in through into the 21st century. So we're, we're, we're still, in effect, we're, we're providing 20th century care quite deep now into the 21st century. Okay. And I think one of the things that, personally that I've been trying to do in listening to people both patients and family members and call, call clinical colleagues is say is it going to be possible to take where we are now and move to this earlier stage disease in younger people mm. or do we have to start again mm. and my view is we have to start again okay. we have to give ourselves a blank canvas to say look we're over we're over there at the moment sorry i'm pointing on a podcast that doesn't really help but i'm pointing <laughs> to the right we're over there at the moment in terms of older people with a dementia syndrome yeah there's still so much we need to do with those people yeah and so much we need to understand to improve quality of life but let's let's create a new space the brain health space where we recognize from the outset this is a brain disease and we we have a different paradigm and that's what the title of my talk was about this paradigm shift Craig is passionate about challenging us to change the conversation, to think about dementia as a preventable disease. The medical tests used to detect and measure the disease may need a new approach with the aim of much earlier detection, allowing for timelier treatment and support when people are younger. Preventing the disease in the first place and understanding our brain and brain health is at the heart of Craig's message. And he also goes on to chat with Craig about this and the potential for an optimistic future for preventing dementia. 
So in your talk, you talked about the silent period, yeah. um, which is that kind of 30s, 40s? 50s. 50s, okay. Yeah. But it's a time when um, we can't actually, we're not noticing signs and symptoms of dementia at all in someone who's just going about living their life. Can I just stop there? Please we're not, stop. We're not noticing signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Dementia is a clinical syndrome. Sure. It's yeah. not, so you don't have people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease who don't have any symptoms or are very early symptoms don't have dementia. Dementia is a condition where you've got significant medic, you know, memory impairment, functional impairment, etc. That's that's the D word. Yeah. We never use the D word. Yeah. These you're people, ver- these you're people talking have very disease. specifically yeah. about Alzheimer's disease. Or Lewy body disease or yep. whatever it might be. Yep. But it, I mean, it's, a, it's a horrible mouthful. Neurodegenerative disease, NDD, sure. if you like. Yeah. So the, those, yeah. So that silent period is yeah. in those people who may have very early disease. I mean, I love to sort of speak an analogy, but think about a lot of cancers. Let's think about cervical cancer, for instance. Mm-hmm. So the earliest stages of cervical cancer are asymptomatic. People, mm-hmm. women, don't notice any symptoms of. I cervical know that because I have to go and get a Pap smear. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and that's yeah. the whole point. So you pick up this disease at an early asymptomatic mm-hmm. phase. And guess what? The prognosis is a thousandfold, don't quote me on that number, yep. but a thousandfold Sheesh. better yep. than if you pick it up when it's CIN4 and it's spread all over your body. Yeah. Unfortunately, the way we run clinical services mm. at the moment for people with dementia is in effect when the disease is spread all over their brain. Mm. So what we need to be doing is saying, well, how can we identify these diseases decades before that stage is reached? Yeah. And it's quite emotive, but I think in some ways we, we, we run palliative care services and memory clinics <laughs> for people who have end stage disease. <laughs> and the challenge has been to get my colleagues and the public to say, well, should we be moving earlier to identify this this as a, as a, as a disease of midlife? And maybe once you have some more information, it's going to be not so silent. The silent. Well, that when so my my because my, you're my, going to be getting that information. We, we, we call it a silent period because, yeah. as I said in my presentation, I said we call it a silent period because we're not listening properly. Yeah. And the tests that we do um, in say memory clinics, the cognitive tests we do, the assessments we do, um, aren't really tuned in to those early changes. And I was presenting one particular cognitive test called the Four Mountains test, which does seem to be sending out a signal that there may be a problem. Okay, can we talk about that? Because I completely failed that test. To the, like, you put, so what Craig did is he put, you put a picture, an image on a screen of four mountains from a particular perspective and then said, have a look, get familiar with it. Now I'm going to show you four more pictures of four mountains, but only one is those four mountains, but they're from a different perspective. And I looked at it and honestly, I was like, I actually don't know. Like, and I have to tell you, um, we're here with Joel, who's the producer, and Joel and I went out for dinner last night and uh, we walked in the exact opposite direction of where we intended to go. Who, both who, of us who, walked who, who, out who was the door. right? We were both, neither of us were You're right. You're both wrong. We were both wrong. <laughs> we were both wrong and then we, and we, and then we laughed at each other. But so I'm someone who's not crash up with yeah. directions and spatial and, you know, I don't know what's going on in my hippocampus, but, um, you know, my... Well, we do know. Yeah, so, yeah, so my question is... <laughs> it's not a lot. Because I'm bad at directions, because I am bad at... Because I'm walking the complete wrong way to dinner and I can't look at those yeah. mountains and tell you, does that mean, you know, 
No. You're, you're not telling me I have, I have no, the early signs absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, no, absolutely not. And I think that there's, there's the, the, I'm, I'm glad you're listening to the presentation because you articulated beautifully what the Four Mountains test was. So you're obviously paying attention. Um, the, the, the most important thing in, in any neurodegenerative disease is change. Yeah. Okay. It's a delta, as we call it. It's a change between one assessment and the next assessment because, you know, Alzheimer's disease, dementia is a progressive condition. So one of the things, the factors that would go into any analysis of, you know, what is wrong would be the interval change over a year or two. I mean, as I said in my presentation, I can't do the four mountains test and I even know the answer to it, you know, but, but if I were to get worse, you know, two, three, four years down the track, my scores were to get even, you know, that was just a one-off test. We do that test. We do 15, 16, 17 different screens with different mm. things. Some were super easy, some were hard. So it's a change score that we're looking at. Um, but these are the things you see you might begin to see as being important for doing that early assessment. Mm. So rather than doing the memory testing that we do or the cognitive testing, I should say, that we do in people with, who suspect to have dementia, like the mini mental state examination or their other tests, which in, in, in early life, even if you have early disease, you just ace them. You have 30 out of 30 or 100%. So we need to look at better tests and maybe pick up these more specific changes um, earlier on and then look at how they change uh, uh, over time. Mm. And that's that then stops being a silent period and starts being a, mm. a, a period of time that we can actually... And we don't just look at a single test. There's, not, there's never going to be one single test for Alzheimer's disease. It's going to be looking at risk factors, genetic risk factors, uh, other sort of so-called modifiable risk factors, brain changes through imaging, brain changes through cognition, bringing all that lovely information together and using you know modern statistical techniques to, to say, right, who are you? What is happening from all of these different features? It could have been the conference and the feeling of shared knowledge, of course, but there was a sense of positivity or at least forward momentum talking with Craig. Having worked with Craig for many years and listening to him talk with Ilsa, I'm always inspired by his knowledge and passion for debunking the many myths around dementia and by doing so, shifting the focus to maintaining brain health throughout our lives Maintaining brain health isn't anything that we don't already know. Exercise, a good diet, sleep, these are all things that help us maintain a healthy brain. This change is an important shift in our thinking about dementia, not as an illness of our brain as we age, but brain wellness throughout our life. Thanks for listening. The Dementia Podcast is produced by Joel Martin, with editing from Sally Grosvenor, mixing and technical support from Neil Blanco, with fact-checking and research by Gina Perello. In partnership with Sydney University's Conservatorium of Music, we have Dr. Narelle Yeo managing the music team, with compositions supervised by Erin McKellar, who is also the composer of the Dementia Podcast theme. The composer for this episode's music is Oren Harkin, our website is DementiaPodcast.com. The Dementia Podcast is a production by Hammond Care's Dementia Centre.